loving God in whom we live and move and have our being. Help us to choose life in you that we may keep the commands of Jesus Christ, follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and witness to the hope that is within us, sharing Christ's love in the world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and happy Easter. We discovered last week that starting with the fifth Sunday of Easter, the emphasis of the Easter season is moving outward. Now, we did talk about upward and inward and outward, but this is where we are. This is the emphasis of these next few weeks, and we will be talking about outward. We see this in our reading today from Acts chapter 17 when Paul was speaking to Athens. And though Paul certainly could confront people with truth when necessary, the hallmark of his approach was his logical and reasoned presentation of the gospel message. Read any of the letters that he wrote, Romans is the best example, and we'll see that he was a master at laying out a sound explanation of the central truths about God's nature, our sin, and Christ's solution. When we look at his background, Paul's organized mind doesn't come as a surprise. He was highly educated. He was tutored under a man who was supposed to be one of the finest teachers in the land. In his writings, we can see his natural tendency to argue point-counterpoint with the people who might challenge his positions. Paul was an intellect. And we could also see something slightly different in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul came to the church at Corinth in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And his speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So in this situation, in Corinth, Paul did not try to impress them with polished speeches and the latest philosophy and apologetics. He was deliberately um, keeping it plain and simple. He wasn't sure how to go about it, and he felt totally inadequate. But the message came through anyway as God's Holy Spirit and power did it, which made it clear that our, our life of faith is a response to God's power not to some fancy mental or emotional maneuvering by him or anyone else. So we see different approaches to different circumstances, but with no compromise to the gospel. Paul was a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ who worked long and hard to communicate the gospel in all kinds of circumstances. And here is Paul alone in Athens, after being driven out of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, once again trying to be faithful in yet another strange and complex situation. Can you think of a better person for God to send to the philosophers in Athens? Paul presented a clever argument starting from the idol to an unknown God and moving all the way to the um, only true God and his resurrected Messiah, his son. So his approach was so effective that some of his listeners became believers. It's very important to note that the approach Paul used in Athens because of the cultural environment. So these philosophers would not have related to a turn or burn approach. They needed a style 
in a way that they could relate to, but nonetheless, Paul is still communicating the uncompromising gospel of Jesus Christ. Our culture, like that of Athens, is a culture of many idols. Today, our idols are, to only name a few, consumer goods, power, sex, and technology. And we are living in a post-Christian society where Christianity and the church are no longer the center of society and the gospel story is becoming more and more unknown. So what will it take for us to be able to communicate faithfully to the culture and subcultures around us? We need to be contextual, but that doesn't mean compromise. So rather than encouraging Christians to run from the dominant culture or to accommodate to that culture, we might consider what it means to communicate the gospel in this situation in which we find ourselves. And if we take our cue from Paul, we will first learn to listen carefully to the culture around us, listening for the ways that people are seeking and searching for God. So what does this listening require? For one thing, we can learn to pay attention to details. Paul looked around him and saw not only idols, but what was inscribed on those idols. He learned how to read the signs of the problems and possibilities within Athens. And beyond paying attention, Paul looked for openings into the hearts of the people. Please hear this and, and understand because it's a really important point that Paul looked for openings into the hearts of the people. Please note this. Paul did not weigh in immediately with critique, criticism, or judgment, but he embodied intellectual and, and a spiritual hospitality, relational, welcome, warmth, kindness, and generosity. So Paul's approach in Athens is relational and it's anchored in love, and this was the best approach for these people in this particular context. And I would argue much of the Western world, and particularly the Western part of the United States and Europe, is similar to Athens. And this hospitable approach is by far the best approach today. So when we see things around us that, that we don't agree with, that doesn't fit our morals and values, that opposes our biblical convictions, what is the first, way, first thing that we think of or the first thing that we say? Is it criticism, critique, or judgment, or welcome, warmth, grace, love, kindness, and generosity? Remember, we can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. It's one thing to simply lambaste idolatry and another thing to think carefully, listen attentively, and pray for clarity and wisdom about what a particular form of idolatry represents, what it is in humanity that they are searching and longing for. Remember, this is what Paul did. He was looking for a window and an opening to people's hearts. In other words, the idolatry of consumerism indicates our preoccupation with acquiring and consuming and uh, possessing materials and goods and services. It shows the, the shallowness and emptiness and even the destruction of personal and social relationships and even one's relationship with God and a looking for things to fill our significance and worth. 
So this is greed, which is idolatry, and the culture of consumerism involves the false worship of another god, the god of consumption, in short, the god of materialism. So we recall Jeremiah's prophetic warning about idolaters who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve and worship them. But that message was for God's people who have walked away from relationship with him. And God raised up Jeremiah to call God's people back into relationship. Or they would experience God's discipline because God is a God of love. So Jeremiah's sole purpose was to reveal the sins of the people and explain the reason for the impending disaster and destruction by the Babylonian army in captivity. Yes, this is true. But the situation in Athens is not an exact parallel. However, like Paul, when coming to a culture with numerous idols, we start by finding things in common. We have this spirit of hospitality, kindness, warmth, relationship, grace, love, and generosity. We listen and we see the heart cry of the people and make the connection with how Jesus Christ meets that need. For example, sexual sin has been around since the beginning of time. Our culture today has accepted more than ever sexual sins as normal, and even redefining marriage, etc. Actually, Orthodox Christians are now being oppressed for their views. And in calling something sin, the culture today immediately Um, call us haters, which is absolutely untrue in reference to true and authentic followers of Jesus Christ. However, let's have a reality check. How do we as Christians talk about people who disagree with the Bible's teaching on sexuality? This is just one example. Do we call um, people judgmental and offensive and vulgar names? Do we do it in front of other people or our loved ones? Could it be that our younger people are being turned off to church and Christianity by the things that we say, the judgmentalism and vulgar names that we use? I know for a fact this is true with some young people because they have talked openly with me. We need to be good examples to our children and grandchildren in the way that we talk about people who are different than us, those who do not share the same value, our same values and morals. So our first response might be, not not me. I would encourage us to ask our children and teenagers whether this is true about us. And if they know that we will not punish them for being honest, some of us might just be surprised by their answer. Allow for true honesty without argument or punishment. You know, as long as we have a heart of humility and a, te- and a, a teachability, then we should be responsive and open to what our loved ones are saying um, in the way that we present ourselves uh, to other people. It is always God who makes the first move toward us. He sent Jesus into the world to save us. And I'd like us to listen to a very uh, familiar passage from John 3, 16 and 17. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten and unique son, So that whoever believes and trusts and clings to, relies on him, shall not perish, come to destruction, be lost, but have eternal everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world in order to judge, to reject, to condemn, 
to pass sentence on the world, but that the world might find salvation and be made safe and sound through him. As followers of Jesus Christ, may this be true of us as well. We don't have to compromise the truth, but we can have a spirit of welcome, warmth, kindness, love, grace, and generosity. It's about respecting people as humans. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to read this from the paraphrase of the Message Bible. It says, Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I have become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. This is incarnational living, and this is exactly what I'm encouraging us as Christians to, to live and to be in the culture in which we live um, and Long Beach and the surrounding areas in our post-Christian world. Remember the way Jesus spoke to religious people versus known sinners. Sinners love Jesus. He loved them into relationship. He forgave their sins, and yes, he told them to go and sin no more. They didn't clean themselves up before coming to Jesus. He loved them just as they were, but he loved them too much to leave them that way. Jesus didn't judge those who were in sin and who knew it. But what about the religious hypocrites? Jesus did have challenging and difficult and hard things to say to the religious hypocrites and even went in, in the temple and cleaned house. Does Jesus need to clean the house of our heart? Clean the house of our attitudes? To clean the house of our words? Who does our life resemble? Jesus or the religious judgmental hypocrites? May we be more like Paul who went looking for and finding the people of Athens, the unknown God and the desire to know more about that God. Paul told the people of Athens to repent, to turn from their idolatry, and turn to the living God. We can say those same words to two different groups of people and have two different responses. If we are more interested in being right without sensitivity, common ground, respect, or warmth, we will have less impact. We might win the argument and show our brilliant intellect, but lose a person and hinder the work of the gospel. But when we start with relationship and respect and speak with empathy, compassion, warmth, kindness, generosity, grace, and love, we will see more openness and response to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an incarnational and hospitable approach. Think hard about the unknown God and let new light from the true God flood through this open window and transform us. 
leave behind the distant signposts of philosophies, poets, and the religious rubbish that humans manufacture. And I'm not saying all, all of that is, is human rubbish, but the things that, that are unhelpful or, or bring us away from God, we need to let that go. There is a living God, and he is now calling everyone, everywhere, to rethink their way of living and to orient their lives around and follow Jesus Christ. We, the church, are the instrument of the kingdom that God uses. We are a witness to, we are a sign of, we are a foretaste of what is to come. We are a community of the king and his kingdom. Let's remember and let's live into that. We listen to the word of God, we listen to the Holy Spirit, and we listen to the culture around us. Jesus will make us into the kind of people who will embody his kingdom and interact with this culture and fruit producing ways and it will happen through hospitable acts so may we hold the bible in one hand and a newspaper in another listen to the holy spirit and speak with love grace respect and humility and let's see what god does in long beach and beyond with the transforming love of jesus christ as our second reading tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The Message Bible says it like this, Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your Master. Be ready to speak up and tell Anyone who asks why you're living the way that you are, and always with the utmost courtesy. As we close, I'd like to look at our gospel reading from John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The passage from our gospel doesn't need much elaboration. It's very clear. The work of ministry happens through abiding in the vine. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. He supplies everything we need. In this post-Christian world in which we live, we need a hospitable, respectful, loving approach. Grounded in, his, in a desire not to be right and to win an argument, but with warmth, humility, love, grace, truth-speaking, vulnerability, generosity, and finding common ground. These will make the gospel of the kingdom desirable. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.